You take your Bibles and open up to Revelation chapter 9. Revelation chapter 9, as we continue our study in Revelation. It's an exciting thing, an encouraging thing to see spiritual life um, illustrated here this morning, especially in the midst of where we are and where we will be. Um, I'll remind you why this is a dark passage. It has a purpose behind it, um, but there's no question about it. We are in judgment territory as we look towards Revelation, but it's purposeful. And like the martyred saints, and I believe the raptured church, we are excited about what the Lord is doing as he takes back his rightful place. And we look forward, as Peter says, to the new heavens and new earth, because doesn't take much for us to look out at this earth and the sky above and go, it's not the way it should be. Lots of wonderful things, lots of blessings, but it is not, you know, the way God intended. It's still marred by sin. So we're going to look at Revelation chapter 9. We're going to see how far we get this morning. We might kind of crank through the fifth and sixth trumpets this morning. Uh, we also might just get through the fifth trumpet. We'll kind of take inventory in a few minutes and see where we're at. Um, but with the 21 verses, we won't read them all. We'll just read them as we walk through together. But just bow your head with me as we look to the Lord in prayer. Father, thank you for our time. The privilege it is even now to look to your word. The contrast that this judgment is to the life, the forgiveness that is found in the gospel, the true gospel of your son, Jesus Christ. And so help us keep that in focus at this point in history, you have been so patient, so long-suffering, and so kind, and even more so when to this moment in Revelation 9 in the future comes that we would keep in perspective that it is a rightful judgment of those who would seek to usurp your rightful place. We just ask this in your son's name. Amen. Every good story follows a somewhat similar arc. If you really look for it in any show, book, movie, you're going to see some level of a standard process because it's just the way stories are told. And so it might start with, you know, um, once upon a time. It might start with in a galaxy far, far away. But it starts with some level of setting. It sets the table for the story. It gets you engaged. It tells you about the characters, and it tells you, maybe introduces the problem or the, the conflict. And then it spends that first act with what a lot of people call this, this rising action or rising kind of conflict. And so they're trying to grab your engagement. Something's wrong here. And now I'm going, I'm interested enough to see then what solution are we going to provide? Or if someone's been kidnapped, how are they going to be rescued? And then at some point in the literature, book, movie, you get to the aha, the, the climax moment. And then you have, after that moment, you have kind of the decline. So it's kind of a, 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 the opposite of the rising action. It's kind of this lowering of action, moving things downward until you get to what most people just simply call a resetting. Most basic kind of platform for, or outline for writing a, a story. 
When you look at the scripture, you're introduced in Genesis to the beginning, to God who created the heavens and the earth. You're introduced to Adam and Eve and the animals and all of his creation. And in chapter three, you're introduced to a serpent, Satan. And that's going to play a role throughout all of history, climaxing, I would say, in the story of scripture, in the life and death and resurrection of Jesus Christ, the son of God. And we're in this picture where things are being reset, where you're seeing glimpses of a new future, of glimpses of restoration, people being redeemed. But yet you don't see these, what we see in Revelation, of, you don't see nations being redeemed. You don't see creation being redeemed. You see it in individuals, in the church. But Revelation comes and it's giving you a preview of the, what I would call the resetting. And very often the resetting looks a lot like the original setting of the story, just like Genesis looks a lot like Revelation. And it's the story of what happened? How is paradise lost? And how is paradise regained through Christ? How is he taking lordship over what was always rightfully his? And why, you may ask, do we live out the story? Why this many millennium? Because the Lord receives more glory as more people are saved. And it just is to say history in your life and others' lives and people getting converted and people getting baptized, all those things matter in the scope of cosmic history. And that's where we really are with Revelation, the idea of cosmic history. And I said, I love baptisms because it's such a positive note. And you might go, here we go again in Revelation. Maybe that's just me when I study every week. And I roll open Revelation 9 and go, man, how do I make this a positive sermon? No way. We already saw a quarter of the earth destroyed and now another third of the earth destroyed and half of the earth, half of the people on earth are killed. I don't, I can't spin this one. This, 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 isn't, this is not going to be, now, if we got to the whole end of the story through 2021, I could, we can get where it's a happy story. But I want to remind you, because it's been a while, if you flip over to Revelation chapter 1 and verse 7, I'm talking a lot about this and kind of talking through how do you study your Bibles and who's the author here, John? Who's he writing to? Why is he writing? What does he want to accomplish with what he's written? But it all comes down to what is the main topic? What is all Revelation? What's it about? And you can say it's about the return of Jesus. So one of the classic statements of Revelation, and it's an absolutely correct statement. Jesus wins. That's a true statement. I don't know if it's the most precise answer to what Revelation is about, but it's true. Jesus returning and his second coming, that's true. But if you look at verse 7, which I think is an explicit statement of where the whole book explains this reality that behold, and he actually quotes or alludes to not full verses, but parts of the Old Testament in multiple places. Behold, he is coming with the clouds and every eye will see him. But then he doesn't talk then that coming in the language you might expect of the church being excited. The church rejoicing. He refers to two groups of people. 
The one is mentioned in Zechariah chapter 12, which is Israel. Every eye will see him, even those who pierced him. And all the tribes of the earth will mourn over him. Yes, amen. And when you have a positive and good message, and for the church we understand Jesus wins, you might miss that this isn't just Jesus returning. This is Jesus returning in judgment. And so when you start to study the book, that is just when you preach Revelation, you can't run away because every one of these different, whether it's seals, trumpets, bowls, they're all going back to what Revelation is about. He could say a lot of things about Jesus, but that's not his point. That's not what has been revealed to John in his revelation. What's been revealed is his return in judgment. When those who see who pierced him, that's not the church. When all the tribes of the earth will mourn, well, the church wouldn't mourn. No, but that's because I don't think what we're talking about here long-term as we get into these judgments, you're not talking to the church, but this is reality. He is returning in judgment. <coughs> and we can learn things from that as well. So I think that's just helpful. Um, if you're going, Josh, you're just really sour and sad and mopey. It's like, well, they're just Revelation 9. I'm trying to present the text as it lies. We've seen over and over uh, kind of this graph. Um, not necessarily an outline of Revelation, but an outline of history. I just think it's helpful. Give you timeline and frameworks. Um, we don't know everything, but we do see what repeated from the Old Testament to the New Testament is that what is coming next on this calendar is the rapture of the church and this tribulation period. Broken in half in three and a half years. Three and a half years, we're going to see that multiple times in Revelation. Described in a number of years. Describes in a number of days and as an explanation of Daniel. And so we are sitting here now as we discuss the seven seals, which contain, the seventh seal then contains the seven trumpets, which then the seventh trumpet is going to contain the seven bowls. We'll see. I can promise we will get through the fifth trumpet and maybe, maybe the sixth trumpet. But what we're going to see as we look at Revelation chapter 9 is a reminder of the history, not of a country, not of an era, but of the universe. A reminder of the original foe cast down from heaven. And what we're going to be encouraged by is this reality that even Satan's rebellion, even all that he has tried to thwart from the beginning, serves God's purposes as Jesus takes back the earth. I mean, that is the ultimate sense of sovereign control in that he is going to give, it would seem here, this level, not all, but some authority by way of giving him a key to this abyss to cause destruction. You won't be able to harm the church. You won't be able to harm those sealed, but he actually will bring judgment to those who 20 and 21 are not even in the midst of the horror and the judgment going to repent. And so even Satan's rebellion, and that's from all the way in the beginning to now, God uses it to serve his purpose, which as you think about it, it shouldn't surprise us because we understand even the worst thing act in, his, in history, the death of Christ was even used for salvation. 
And so we're going to look here at these first 11 verses and the fifth angel sounding the fifth trumpet. And we're going to see that this is God's devil. I say that because that's from this quote that Martin Luther is famous for. That he would say, as talking about the sovereignty of God and suffering, that even the devil is God's devil. So number one, we're looking at the first 11 verses, and we're going to see how God uses even the rebellion of Satan in his purposes to accomplish his purposes and for him to receive the glory that he deserves. Look at verse 1 here in chapter 9. The fifth angel sounded. And just as a reminder, we saw four angels sound their trumpets already. And I guess the best way to keep us in some kind of context is to say those were very much cosmological. Um, They affected the earth. And so if you go back here, just eight, uh, verse seven, the first sound there came hail, fire mixed with blood, thrown to the earth. Third of the earth was burned up. Third of the trees were burned up and all the grass was burned up. Second angel, great mountains burning with fire, thrown to the sea. A third sea became blood. Uh, the water becomes poison. Fourth angel sounds, verse 12. Third of the sun, third of the moon, third of the stars were struck, so that a third of them would be darkened and the day would not shine for a third of it and night in the same way. And so, yes, it's destructive, but it's towards creation. You don't see human beings, who I'm sure drastically impacted by, but not specifically, you could say, targeted by these angels or Really, as you understand them, these angels, um, the trumpets are sounding, and then who's doing the work? And I don't think it's, it's the angels, but it is going to be the demons who are doing the work. But then, verse 13, I looked, and I heard an angel, chapter 8, flying into heaven, saying with a loud voice, Whoa, 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 to those who dwell on the earth because of the remaining blast of the trumpet of the three angels who are about to sound. So it's a kind of break point of, you thought it was bad, it's worse. And you don't want to be there, and it's going to get worse. And you'd like for the story to be positive. You'd like the story to end, but I'm just here to tell you, verse 20 says, The rest of mankind who were not killed by these plagues did not repent of the works of their hands. And so this serves not for their salvation, but is going to serve, it seems, for if not the majority all that simply double down and reject the lordship of Christ. And so the fifth angel sounds in verse 1. And then I saw a star from heaven which had fallen to the earth, and the key of the pit of the abyss was given to him. This is where the fun of Revelation. You're going, okay, we talked about stars. And they were real stars, right? And then you get here, and I'm going to say this isn't a star, and you go, well, how do you know it's not a star? Well, I think one, because this is how Revelation works. It uses phrases that should trigger, if you know your Bible well, and pull you back and go, oh, I've heard this phrase before. And secondly, the other thing that you're going to see here is this star does things that stars don't normally do. And you start to go, okay, I understand. We're using here figurative language. And it's not to say that everything is figurative in Revelation, but when the text points to it being figurative, in this case, a star from heaven falling to the earth, the key is given to him. Star, him, personal pronoun, given a key. And you go, this seems to be someone who is an individual. And then the question becomes, who is this individual? What is he saying? How is he writing this that you should know something? This star from heaven, which has fallen to the earth. 
Some people will refer to this as happening at the beginning of the tribulation. Uh, It's hard with the language because even in English, you have this kind of past tense, had fallen, and trying to reflect the Greek there. It's something that has already happened. He's not necessarily seeing it happen. He's saying, I saw an angel who has already fallen in the past. So is this star being cast out of heaven at the beginning of the tribulation, perhaps? Or is this referring all the way back to the beginning of the world? Um, Take either one. But I think it's referring back to this idea of Satan, this idea of Lucifer, which simply means brightness, who is cast out of heaven and is referred to as a star. And I think 11 then, they have as a king over them the angel of the abyss, who's known in Hebrew as Abaddon, and in Greek has a name of Apollyon, which simply means in both cases the same thing, which is destruction. But where do I go for this idea of a star falling that should trigger this idea of Satan, the devil, as an individual, not as demons in plural? One place would be Isaiah 14, verses 12 through 14, where Isaiah this discussion, and you got to remember, as you study Isaiah, we're going to look at this passage more completely, um, toggling between judgment and future restoration. And so he always has a picture usually bigger than just even his immediate context. But how have you fallen from heaven, O star of the morning, son of the dawn? You've been cut down to the earth, you have, who have weakened the nations. But you said in your heart, I will ascend to heaven, and I will raise my throne above the stars of God. I will sit on the mount of assembly in the recesses of the north, and I will ascend above the heights of the clouds, and I will make myself like the most high. And so you're reading Genesis chapter 3, and you don't really hear much. You, you understand this is the serpent. This is the serpent who is really implying this very thing. I will make myself like the most high. That's the lie the serpent tells. You see enmity put between the seed of the woman and the serpent in the garden. But you don't see a lot of, where did he come from? And that's when you start looking at all these passages and you start to see, oh, this is a fallen angel who desired, said, I will no longer take my place, but I want to be like God. And the same thing is the temptation for Eve and Adam and the same temptation is for each one of us. And for everyone in Revelation chapter 9, they want, they have a choice. Do you want to serve the Lord or do you want to serve yourself? Or in this case, they don't even realize they're going to be serving uh, and worshiping with ultimately idols, not even themselves and these other things. But that is Satan's, you could say, original sin, that he desired to be like God and he is cast out of heaven. And then the question comes because he has seemingly access, say the book of Job, whether we're seeing here the star from heaven being described as one fallen then, cast out, or maybe cast out of heaven at the beginning of the tribulation. But here, something very distinctive is happening, which is he is going to be given something. And what that tells us is that this is God's devil in the sense that God is in control. He doesn't give him unlimited authority. He can't touch the 144,000 who are sealed, but... He can touch the earth and he can touch individuals. Luke chapter 10. Jesus even says it this way. The 70 returned who went out and did the ministry of the Lord. They returned with joy saying, Lord, even the demons are subject to us in your name. 
And he said to them, I was watching Satan fall from heaven like lightning. Behold, I have given you authority to tread on serpents and scorpions and over all the power of the enemy and nothing will injure you. Nevertheless, do not rejoice in this. The spirits are subject to you. Rejoice that your names are recorded in heaven. Not everything spiritual. This is a lesson in Christianity, a lesson in Revelation. Not everything spiritual is good. But the thing you should cling to is that your names are recorded in to heaven. Not that they, in this case, were given unique authority over the angels by Christ. But he saw, he says, Satan fall from the heaven like lightning. And again, you see the star that fell from heaven that is personified as one who receives authority to the pit of the abyss. And you make the connection and you see and understand he seems to be clearly talking about the devil. And he's given this key to the pit. Well, that means someone has the authority in the first place. Who is that? If you go back to Revelation uh, chapter 1, we don't need to go there, verse 18, you're going to see Jesus is given, what? The keys to death and Hades. He has the authority and he grants in this moment, there seems to be a opportune moment where he gives this at the right time to Satan, that he can unlock this abyss, some of your translations say bottomless pit. And he will open it, verse 2, and smoke will come up out of the pit like the smoke of a great furnace, which is very much a descriptor of every description we have of hell. But we're dealing with these categories where this isn't the lake of fire described later because no one's been cast into it yet. And then the beast, the Antichrist, the great prophet are cast into it. And then ultimately the dragon or Satan himself will be cast into that. But something similar that he is opening where these demons are enchained, in which they will be then let out. Verse 3, as described as out of the smoke, will come locusts upon the earth and power was given them as scorpions of the power of the earth. Of, scorpions of the earth have power. The power to do what? The power to cause fear and the power to cause pain. Torment is going to be the distinction of this fifth trumpet. Whereas the sixth trumpet, you're going to see death. This one is torment. And the locusts, I think, again, you go back to, well, these locusts don't seem like locusts. Locusts go after the trees. Locusts go after nature, which this isn't about. That would have been in the last section. These are locusts that go after individuals. Locusts that are described in verse 7 as heads appeared to be crowns like gold and their faces were like that of faces of men. They had hair like the hair of women and their teeth were like teeth of lions. Breastplates like breastplates of iron and the sound of their wings was like a sound of chariots and many horses running to battle. And they had tails like scorpions and stings in their tails is the, their power to hurt men for five months, which is an interesting connection because most commentaries point out the lifespan of the locust, about five months. So it might be one of the reasons locust being one of the plagues in Exodus connected here. But understanding it seems to be a picture of demonic activity as they torment because these locusts have a king and he is the king over the abyss, which is Satan. To understand, I think this better, we're going to do a little work a little work on the history here of angels. A little work on where they have been. Why would they be in a pit? 
because I think you can connect these things and it makes sense that this would be where they are and where they are released from to do this damage. And so what we're going to look at is Genesis chapter 6 and try to say, what is this pit? What is this bottomless pit? Because it's not the lake of fire. It's something different. And this idea of (coughs) pit or abyss is used multiple times to describe where these angels are gone. And there's a reason you will see that they are sent to it. So Genesis chapter 6, there's, there's different views of this. So for those of you, maybe you've recently jumped into your yearly Bible reading plan, and so you hit Genesis 6, and you went, I don't know what that means. Um, who are the sons of God here in verse 1? There's a couple different views. There's a little more practical view in the sense of like, or I should say less sensational view of it being the descendants of Seth. Or even connecting it to the Nephilim and saying it's this heroic men of the past. But the third view, which is the view I take, is a little more sensational, but I think it's the view that matches Scripture the best, that connects to, we'll see, Second Peter, Jude, and Revelation chapter 9. And I think you'll see why it's helpful to understand what is going on in this cosmic story in that all of the demons, including Satan, the king, as it were, of the demons, are submissive. They can only do what they're allowed to do. Come here, Genesis chapter 6. Obviously, we're post-fall, but we're pre-flood. And now it happened in those days when men began to multiply on the face of the land and the daughters were born of them, that the sons of God saw that the daughters of men were good in appearance. And so the question simply becomes, what are the sons? Who are they? The sons of God. And that phrase in Hebrew is only used four or five times. And it's used a few times in Job. It's going to be used twice here. It's used in Daniel, talking about that when— Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego are in the fire. They appeared as sons of God. Clearly, it seems to describe that as angelic beings. And so I take it, and it's normal sense here that we would understand it in the Hebrew Bible, that this is simply a reference to angelic beings. That's not the hard part. The harder part is then understanding, well, how does this work? And I don't think we'll have all the answers, but we think we have uh, implications. And so that the sons of God, the angels, they saw daughters of men were good in appearance, and they took wives for themselves, whomever they chose. It's hard for us to go, why is this offense so significant? Because it's based on this offense where Yahweh says, my spirit shall not strive with man forever because he indeed is flesh. Nevertheless, his days shall be 120 years. And it's not that you'll only live to be 120, which I think I would take. I think most of us would take 120. Uh, This is to say, we're striving with them until the flood, which is 120 years away at this point. And so what causes Yahweh to say that? What is so wicked? What is so evil? And it seems to be directly tied to what the sons of God have done. Part of this understanding is tying back to our understanding the importance in Genesis 3 of the seed. Either got to ignore it or notice it. I'm going to notice it at first and see if it gets fixed. First time for everything. That's funny. All right, there's no distraction. We got it. We're already in a weird enough passage. Um, Sons of God, and we look at them, and you see them as angelic beings, and you have to understand, back to Genesis 3, the importance of seed and how that is tracked. Um, Because everything ends up being, where is the seed 
coming from. Because they're looking for the seed from Eve who will crush the serpent's head. And then it starts to narrow, right? Not just the seed of Eve, but then it's going to come from Abraham's line. And then it's going to narrow and it's going to come from Judah. And a son of Judah named David. And from David, it's going to get very specific. And so when they start, <coughs> we don't know how this happens, but it would seem either possessing, possessing them in some way and creating this union, it is messing with the seed. It is messing with what is going on in whatever kind of seemingly children that they are having. And so it's particularly heinous because this is not part of God's plan. And if you mess up the line, you mess up God's plan. So he steps in here and says, no, this is not happening. And what we're going to learn from other places, he's going to step in and he's going to deal with these angels. And the angels are going to fear that if they commit this sin again, they go straight to the pit. Just as a note, the Nephilim there, uh, these mighty men were on the earth in those days. And also afterward, when the sons of God, so I think it's another reference, angels came and the daughters of men, they bore children to them. Those were the mighty men who were of old men of renown. There's no description of the Nephilim. And I take that I think what he's saying is those are distinctive. And I think he's actually reminding, because you got to remember the author and the audience, right? This is Moses writing to the Jewish people who are about to go into the promised land. And they know the Nephilim. And he wants to say, the Nephilim were there. They are not these people. So that's just a quick note of how I understand that. Um, They were distinctive and they are not the Nephilim. There's something different. Um, They're the kind of people that seem descended with mighty men, yes, but not some kind of um, angelic being, human cross or something of that nature. Well, as you continue down, you go to Luke chapter 8. Because it just doesn't take that. You go, okay, well, that makes sense, Josh. But you go to Luke chapter 8, you see Jesus. And Jesus says and asks the demon here, (coughs) what is your name? And he said, Legion. For many demons had entered him. And they were pleading with him to command them to go away into the abyss. Same word that we find in Revelation chapter 9. So what are they worried about? They know this isn't their time. This isn't necessarily what they're thinking of what we get here at the end of Revelation at Lake of Fire. But they're afraid. Why? Well, seemingly, they know they have possessed someone. And what was when the penalty before cast into the abyss? And so they're asking, we don't want to go there. Rather, cast us into the herd of swine feeding there on the mountain. And the demons pleaded with him to permit them to enter the swine. And he gave them permission to do so. Fills in the gaps a little bit here. Second Peter chapter 2, 4 through 5. For God did not spare angels who sinned, but cast them into a pit and delivered them to chains of darkness for being kept for judgment and did not spare the ancient world, but preserved Noah, a preacher of righteousness with seven others when he brought a flood upon the world of the ungodly. Second Peter talking of false teachers. And this is a warning You think they're going to get away with it? No. God didn't spare the angels, and he's not going to spare these false teachers either, but also the encouragement. What? Those who were faithful, he kept Noah safe. He's actually using another analogy as well there, and just reminding them of being safe. But you have left at least with, who are we talking about? He just says it like we should know this story 
that God did not spare angels who sinned. Because we understand there's demons, but yet they, which group is this? Well, these sinned in a distinct way, and I think it's a reference back to Genesis 6 that would have been well known, at least in Jewish history, and delivered them to chains of darkness. He said, you've committed this heinous crime. They are chained and they are cast into the abyss, cast into the pit, being kept for judgment and ultimately kept for where we are, Revelation chapter 9. And then Jude 5 through 7. He uses two illustrations with Sodom and Gomorrah and with these angels. And he says, I want to remind you, though you know all things that Jesus, having once saved people out of the land of Egypt, so he's going back, look at your Old Testament, be encouraged. Jesus, um, having once saved people out of the land of Egypt, that same God they served, delivered them. He subsequently destroyed those who did not believe. So this has the double-edged sword of false teaching, false prophet, belief, unbelief. He's going to keep and secure and keep those who are in him. And if those who oppose will be destroyed. Same argument as Peter. And if angels who did not keep their own domain, but abandoned their proper abode, he is kept in eternal bonds under darkness for the day, for the judgment of the great day, which this is where we are in Revelation. Just as Sodom and Gomorrah and the cities around them having indulged in the same way as these and gross sexual immorality and having gone after strange flesh are exhibited as an example in undergoing the punishment of eternal fire. And so Jude's helpful because he connects both of these Old Testament stories in what's the nature of both those stories? Sexual sin. And actually, both of the stories <coughs> relate sexual sin with angels. If you remember Sodom and Gomorrah, it's the angels who come to Lot. And he uses them both as illustrations. And so it ties back to Genesis 6 in that way. And even the demons, they're afraid of going there. And when Jesus comes to the earth, and it would seem here, is the moment in time of judgment where the key is given to Satan to go and let them out. Are they uniquely wicked? You know, are there more wicked demons than the average demon? I don't know. But they are used in this way of judgment. And so we look at that and we see that reality. I think it's the best understanding in Revelation 9 there to understand this as that pit talked about in all those different places. And the subsequent demons, they are going to come out and they are going to affect the earth. Described as locusts here. Pretty much described as, um, whereas locusts would typically go after land and earth. You see in verse 4, they don't do that. They are told not to hurt the grass, nor any green thing, nor any tree, but only the men who do not have the seal of God on their foreheads. You see this language of permission. They're not permitted to kill anyone, but to torment. They can act. God's not making them do anything. They're evil, wicked beings being evil and wicked. But they're still under his control. That reality that the devil is, as Martin Luther said, God's devil. I think there's an encouragement here to us that our greatest foe is ultimately submissive to our Savior. Encouragement as well that this kind of thing here is 
temporary. And even the world we live in, in that way, is temporary. There is something better that is coming. And it's instructive for all of us that we ask the questions of (coughs) why we serve whom we serve. Because if anything comes out of the fifth and then the sixth trumpet, it is this, that you think there's a third way. We live in such a polarizing world that we, we, we want to go, well, they told me I only could do this or this, right? We have two parties. I got to vote for one. Is there any third way? And, you know, we, no, like, just, there's never a third way. Well, sometimes there's a third way. So I think it's good if we're creative and we can find third ways. However, in this situation, there is no third way. You either are going to be worshiping the Lord or verse 20, you're going to see this lack of repentance because it's not that they don't worship. It's rather that they don't worship the Lord. They worship demons, verse 20 says. And the idols of gold and silver money and of brass and of stone and wood, which can neither see nor walk, hear nor walk. They do not repent of their murders, nor their sorceries, nor of their sexual malignity, nor of their thefts. Everybody serves somebody. We like to think of ourselves as really independent. For those of you who live in Sarpy County, you got a reminder last few weeks. You think you own your house. Everyone's like me. Your taxes went up significantly. And it's like, oh man, I thought I owned this house. And then it's like, nope. I paid something for it. And it's paying a lot more than I used to. And maybe try not paying those taxes. Right? Is it really mine? Or is it going to get taken away from me? We have this sense of independence, right? But to be human is to be dependent. And we, rec- we need to recognize that and recognize it, I think, in light of the truth <coughs> of the gospel. Because it's a terrifying thing to see the lack of repentance here in the midst of such severe judgment. We're reminded again, Jesus is coming in judgment. And we are reminded that even Satan's rebellion serves God's purpose as Jesus takes back the earth. You look at what Paul says. Second Corinthians chapter 6. He says, And working together with him, we also plead with you not to receive the grace of God in vain. For he says, At the acceptable time, I listened to you. And on the day of salvation, I helped you. Behold, now is the acceptable time. Behold, now is the day of salvation. Because Paul is there even writing the church at Corinth. And he's concerned that having worked together, having gone to church together— that you may have not received the grace of God. Or in this way, he words it, you would have received it in vain, that you didn't truly submit, you didn't truly believe. So hopefully each and every Sunday is a moment for all of us to evaluate who are you serving? Do you recognize as the lamps recognize that God is holy and God is perfect, and that we are sinners in need of repentance, in need of a Savior? Do we look to Christ's work? as sufficient? Or do you want to add, well, I'll get to heaven because of the good works that I've done? No, it has to be on Christ and Christ alone. But remember, Christ alone, he's the one who is the ultimate authority. He is the rightful king, the rightful ruler, and he will keep his own safe. Even in the midst of this fifth trumpet, this horrible suffering, those who are sealed— 
will not be harmed. He keeps his, and he will keep them safe. Let's pray. Father, thank you for the time that we have had to look and to see in the judgment of this uh, fifth trumpet and to see the realities of judgment that are coming and that you are a just judge. This is not judgment met out on those who do not deserve it. You have given ample time, even time this morning, to look to you and to repent and ask for forgiveness, to put our complete trust and hope in the work of your Son. I pray that we would all have done that this morning and that we would not wait, as Peter says, that we would not work together in vain, but that it would be real and genuine. We would strive to continue the perfect work that you have began in us. We just ask these things as we look to you and pray this in your son's name. Amen.